Sorry, we're just looking for the clicker right now. I have like 37,000 slides to show you guys this morning, so. Uh, there we go. There's the first one. Oh, nice. Oh. Today, the title of the sermon is How the Universal Church Expresses Itself Locally. I'm just going to read from Acts 2 for a moment. Then we'll pray and begin the sermon. Acts 2, starting in verse 29, Peter preaches, the Apostle Peter preaches, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Psalm 16. God has raised this Jesus to life, all, and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, Heavenly Father, as, as we begin today, and uh, what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, and, and how the New Testament and the Word of God calls, us, calls the universal church to how to express itself locally, in the local church, Lord, we begin with a passage where the church is birthed, through the preaching of the gospel and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, giving life, beginning the new creation through faith and redemption, that Jesus, the Messiah, we crucified, who died for our sins, also rose from the dead. Now God, help us understand today, Lord, uh, let not uh, the words of man convince, but may your word Speak to the heart of those here today. May ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you're visiting, today we're taking a break from Genesis to cover church membership. Uh, 
I guess for the housekeeping, we'll be in Genesis 6 uh, next week, which has the Nephilim and just some other odd things. So just, you know, read that passage before if you want your children in that uh, message. Just know I'll do my best to keep it G-rated and proper. But today is church membership. As you know, church membership, like many other teachings among Christians, is a controversial issue. Maybe you don't know that, but I can assure you it is a controversial issue. On one side, you have Christians who are against church membership because they say the Bible doesn't say you have to become a member of a church. And that those, they say that those who advocate for church membership are only imposing their personal views, but not biblical ones. On the flip side of the coin, we have Christians who say, while the Bible may not explicitly say it, it does teach a formalized membership, and therefore every Christian should become a member of a church. And we should begin today by asking the question, does the Bible say that we have to become members of a church? By that I mean, is there a passage or some verse or Anything else in the Bible that we can point to and say, see, it says you must become a member. No. No, it does not. And if there were, I would just put the verse on the screen and you could all go home. But I would expect you to sign up for church membership before you left if you live in Leavenworth or Kashmir or Wenatchee. Even though it doesn't, Before you write off church membership, let me suggest that the reason the Bible doesn't explicitly say, doesn't explicitly say a Christian has to become a member of a church is because it does say if you are in Christ, you already are, which means the moment you became a Christian, you also became a member of Christ's body, which means you're now part of the universal church. And that we can support with Scripture. I can point to that verse, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made a drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Okay? The person who opposed says, yeah, but, but that passage doesn't say you have to join a local church. That's true. What we will see today, Lord willing, is that joining and serving in a local church is how you express being part of the universal church. One of the main threads of this sermon today will will be to demonstrate that what is expected of the universal church, what's expected of all Christians can only be done in the context of the local church. Which means, if there is no formal church membership, then how were the churches in the New Testament conducting the affairs that that was expected of them? You take the issues of widows. What to do about widows in 1 Timothy 5. 
Starting in verse 9, Paul says, let a widow be enrolled. Let her be enrolled. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Let her be enrolled. Enrolled to what? How are the churches supposed to keep track of these widows that Paul's referring to if there's no formal church membership or roster to whom they belong? Now, who are the widows that the churches are supposed to examine the character of? <laughs> Just walk up to any lady that looks over 60 and be like, hey, have you washed his feet yet? Who are they supposed to examine the character of? If it isn't the widows who belong to a specific individual church. This is a point I wish I, the, the next point I wish I could articulate better and convey the necessity, the necessity for studying the Bible because there's certain teachings or doctrines within the Bible that they're, they're not explicitly stated but yet they are categorically taught. For example, Christianity worships a triune God, right? I think we all agree on that. We worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God in three persons, and we identify God as Trinity. But why? Does the Bible actually say that God is Trinity? As in, does it literally say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are Trinity? No. The Bible never uses the word Trinity. And search all you want. You won't find that precise, precise terminology anywhere in the Bible. You will not find that verbatim in the Bible. Tertullian formed that word. But yet, even though that word's not in the Bible, the Trinity is essential to our Christian faith. In fact, we don't have Christianity without it. And, and then so it'd be good to ask ourselves, if the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity to describe God, then why do we worship God as three persons in one nature? And the answer is because the Bible teaches it. See, it doesn't explicitly say it, but it does teach it. The point is that the Bible doesn't have to say something explicitly or literally for it to be true, which means we don't need a verse to support every bit of argumentation that we make, but we do need to be able to teach that doctrine from the Bible. So we can't just make argumentation from whatever we want. We have to build doctrines from the Word of God and only the Word of God. But we use words like Trinity or like church membership in order to, to for, for categories to explain what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches God is three in one. The Bible teaches you are a member of the universal church and you should express that through the local church. You see, whether we like it or not, Christians are doctrinal people. It means we're students of theology, every single one of us. It doesn't mean we're only doctrinal people, 
Because as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, the goal of our teaching, the goal of all of our doctrines is love. So we don't study the doctrines for the sake of looking studious. That's pride. Instead, we study doctrines for the purpose of loving the Lord our God and loving one another. But we can't separate doctrine from the Christian faith in order to do so. We need to know how and what to do. And the Bible helps us understand. Now, I hope that makes sense because what we're going to do in regard to church membership today is, is just that. We're going to assemble the doctrine of church membership to see. Well, I hope it's convincing to you that we should be members of a local church. Just to reiterate, my, go- my goal is not to convince you that, that you're, just, you're, so, you're supposed to become a member because the Bible says, if you are in Christ, you already are. And, and I think that means that we don't need to be asking one another, should I be a member? And rather, what we should be asking is, since I'm a member already, what does that mean for me? What is my role as a member in the body of Christ? So therefore, the goal of the sermon is to show that the local church is how you express the reality that you are part of the universal church. And we're going to do that by observing the roles and expectations that the New Testament places upon us as Christians. Hopefully, we'll see that that those roles, those expectations must be done within the context of the local church. Therefore, we should formally belong to a local church. As a pastoral note, I should say from the get-go that this sermon, I know this sermon, I realize this sermon is going to feel more teachy than preachy. That's because I'm building a biblical case for church membership, and I wholeheartedly as a preacher believe that preaching is not just teaching. Preaching has teaching, but preaching isn't just teaching. As listening to a Martin Lloyd-Jones podcast this uh, previous week, he says he defines preaching as logic on fire. So with the Lord's help, we're going to kindle a flame today. I just wanted you to know that before we proceed any further. And there's another thing he said. We should never apologize for the length of a sermon or say sorry in a sermon, so I won't. But today might be just a little bit longer, so I'm sorry. (laughs) All right, commit to a local church. Point one. I want to begin by quoting from Grace to You, which I put on the screen. It's a a website from uh, John MacArthur's church in Southern California, if you're familiar with it, because I find their definition of church membership very clear and beneficial. It says, when an individual is saved, they become a member of the body of Christ because they are united to Christ and the other members of the body in this way, they are therefore qualified to become a member of a local expression of that body. And the way in which they do that is to formally commit oneself to an identifiable local body of believers who have joined together for specific divinely ordained purposes. End quote. 
If you think back to Acts 2, it's why I've read from that passage this morning. This is what we read. This is, this is what happened, right? From, from the sermon that Peter began to preach at Pentecost and from the coming of the Holy Spirit that cut the heart of those who heard the word of God and believed the gospel. Those who, those who heard the message, they believed and said, what should we do? And Peter told them, repent, be baptized. And then those who were, what does it say? They were added to the number of believers. Afterward, they're added to the church in Judea. The church is being birthed. They're added to it. They're committing themselves to gathering with one another, devoting themselves to the divinely ordained purposes that MacArthur refers to. And we refer to them as our vision, or a.k.a. the wheel diagram that we looked through this morning in the tall hound meeting, the town hall meeting. They devoted to prayer, scripture, breaking bread, the ordinances, worship. And it's their commitment to be formally added, formally added to the Judean church by devoting themselves to the biblical practices. And that's our first point of application. They devoted themselves to the biblical practices, but they devoted themselves to doing those in the Judean church or whatever church they were leaving to be part of. Therefore, commit yourself to a local church. It's, it's, it sounds silly. Commit yourself to a local church. Well, that's obvious. Well, I, don't, I don't think so. I think it's a much needed point of application because there are so many Christians that are uh, reluctant to do so. I'm not referring to anyone here today, by the way. When I observe evangelical perspectives regarding church membership, I do find a vast majority are unwilling to formally commit to a local church. One of the most common objections goes something like this. I don't need to be part of the local church because I'm part of the universal church. My reply to that is, yes, you are part of the universal church. But the way in which you express that reality is through the context of a local church. And you cannot fulfill all of those obligations without doing so. And so here's some practices that we commit to in a local church. We commit ourselves to the instruction of God's word. We commit ourselves to what the Bible refers to as the one another's. And we'll get into that in a moment. We commit to participating in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. And baptism, Matthew 28, 18-20. We commit to prayer. And we commit to proclaiming the gospel to our community and teaching them the Bible, making disciples, becoming a disciple, making a disciple. And no matter if you're sold on the idea of church membership yet or not, there at least should be no disagreement that every Christian is called to devote themselves to these practices. And with this said, or with that said, I want to present a series of questions asking how these practices can be done without being done in the context of the local church. And this is where we come back to the one another's.
for the record. If being a student of doctrine isn't your thing and you don't want to be labeled a theologian and just about, I just, I just want to be the church, just be the church. I just want to love on people. Here's your checklist to do so. The one and others. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, be like-minded toward one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth and love to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, submit to one another. Consider one another better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works and not neglecting to meet. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Close yourselves with humility toward one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults or your sins to one another. I got that off some website and just tweaked it a little bit. These one another's are the practical application of how the universal church is supposed to express itself in the context of the local church. Which, which, what is that? I keep saying that sentence. That's a title shirt. What does that mean? It means that if you are in Christ, these are the things you're supposed to be doing at some individual church in your community where you live. That's the local church. Universal church is every Christian. Local church is every Christian you meet with weekly. I mean, for, for, if you just look at the references for all the one another's, almost every single one of those was written to a local church. Think about it. Philippians was written to who? Philippi. Thessalonians was written to who? Thessalonica. Galatians was written to who? Galatia. So on and so on. And the linchpin that, that holds all the one another's together is Romans 12.5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So therefore the application is, since your members united to one another, the application is live that way. Live in that reality. Be an encouragement to one another. Te teach one another. Disciple. Look to the interest of one another, not just your own. Pray for one another. Be kind. Serve one another. And all the list up there. This is how we should treat and love one another. But back, back to our series of questions. How can these practices be done if they're not practiced in the local church? I mean, think about it. I, look, yes, yeah, some of them can be done. Not all of them. I mean, think about it. Who is the group of people we're supposed to enter in fellowship with to do all these things? I mean, does the Bible actually expect us to live these out, these one another's out, toward every single Christian in the entire world? Of course not. 
I mean, if we meet them, we should be kind on a plane. But the instructions that are given to the Philippians were to be conducted in Philippi. The instructions given to the Romans were be, to be conducted in Rome. And, 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 and just the, the one another's and, and practicing these within the context of the local church. That's where official church membership or a formal church membership is necessary because it allows us to know the people that we're supposed to carry out these commands with. What church do you belong to? Cornerstone. Oh, me too. Whoa. I'm supposed to encourage, serve, love, teach, Exhort, admonish, whatever, to you and, and back. That's the commitment we make to one another. It's quite flattering if you think about it because, because this is what God tells every one of his churches how to treat one another, right? This is how God wants every single one of you treated by the other members in your church. It's the type of love that God desires for you to be shown, He wants this for you. He commands his people to love you, serve you, encourage you, admonish you, teach you. All of the one another's. So if we want to show the love of Christ, if that's what we're about, I want to show the love of Christ. If we want to do that, the one another's are our standard for doing so. Yes, we, we can do some of these, many of these things, I mean, toward anyone that we meet. But that's not the context of these passages and what the apostles are writing. The immediate context is a group of believers who met together on a weekly basis. Think about it. How can you pray for those You've never gotten to genuinely know, right? How can you rejoice with someone that you've never spent any time mourning with? How can you build up a church if you're never around to do so? And how about the issues of belonging to one another, being accountable to one another? How can you be accountable to a church if you're never around to account for are we supposed to just wander from, hey, think about accountability. Do we just wander from church to church on a Sunday morning, just walk up to some stranger in the foyer, <laughs> just look at this guy and be like, hey, man, you're accountable to me. Got any sins you need to confess? Oh, <laughs> he's going to look at you like a weirdo. He's going to be like, I don't know you. Get away from me. We don't have that type of relationship. We can talk a big game, but a lack of commitment to a local church, a lack of commitment to a local church, builds the type of relationships that are an inch deep and a mile wide. That's not what the Bible calls us to. The the type of relationship that, that, that Paul is referring to, that the Word of God is referring to, is an intimate relationship that the Lord wants us to have with one another. But that type of intimacy takes time to grow. And if you never commit to do that with one exclusive church, 
how do you ever expect to have those types of connections with God's people? It's a blessing. I, I hope you understand. One of the blessings of committing to one local church is just having intimate fellowship that, that I can assure you, if you've ever looked for a church and couldn't find a healthy church or find a church where you could meet a group of believers to fellowship with, then you know how detrimental, how, how just desperate you feel praying for, wanting. I just want to be able to meet with a group of believers who love the Lord and I can walk with. And when you can't find that, we're desperate. If you don't know what that's like, then you're not going to understand the blessing that it is to have an intimate relationship with one local church. So if, if you find yourself saying, hey, I, I, I want to practice all of those. I'm not good at them. If, if I know the checklist, but I haven't checked it all off. But I want to practice all the one another's with you guys. Then commit to that local church. And, and you begin that process by entering into a formal membership. Sometimes I'm told it's liked or appreciated when I say the next points get shorter, just so you know. So there you go. They do. Point two, submit to a local church. When you commit to a church, you're also choosing to submit to that church. And that begins with the church's affirmation of your testimony. The New Testament teaches that the local church should affirm who is a follower of Christ and who is not. And the candidate put before them should be one who has repented from sin, placed their faith in Christ, been baptized, and chosen to submit themselves, here we go, to the doctrines held by that congregation. Matthew 16, and I tell you, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is one of the only two times Jesus actually uses the word church in the entire Gospels. The first is right here in Matthew 16, which Jesus gave the local church the authority to affirm those, to bind in those, to profess faith in his death and resurrection. And the second time he uses it is in Matthew 18, which is the opposite. It's the removal of Christians who are unrepentant. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. What church? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's that authority again. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's the church, and that changes the magnet on refrigerators when we see that in the process of church restoration and discipline. Here, Jesus gives the proper steps in Matthew 18 for the church to decide how to restore a Christian who is in sin. First you go, then take a few. And if they refuse to listen... Tell the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church's pleading, Jesus says, remove them. Now we see this take place in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul tells the church in Corinth to remove the unrepentant man from their midst. But remove him from what? And if there's no formalized membership for him to be added to, then what in the world is the man going to be removed from? Was Paul simply referring to removing the man from the building? No. And we all know this because the church isn't a building, right? The church is a body, a body with many members. And when Jesus says, tell it to the church, does, think about this, tell it to the church, right? He says it, tell it to the church. Does Jesus actually have the universal church in mind? I mean, if someone's unrepentant in sin and they refuse to listen to the church, is that, that sin, what they're doing, supposed to end up in a tweet on social media with the name, date, sin, and location of the unrepentant sinner? Of course not. I, I, well, I, I say it's silly to even suggest it. I mean, it's not silly, but... I think it's unreasonable. And the other option, which I think is much more logical, is that Jesus is referring to the church that the person belongs to. Tell them. Remove them. And Jesus says, look, have the church plead. Have the church pray. Have the church reach out. Have the church offer help in any way possible to encourage this person to repent from their sin. But if there's not activity of the Holy Spirit in their life and they don't submit to the church's plea, then they're to be removed. And again, I ask, if there's no formal membership, then what exactly are the unrepentant being removed from? And, and I, want, I want to say this. I found myself, I almost seemed a bit uh, hard-hearted or, 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 or joking for a moment. I don't mean to be because an unrepentant sinner is, is that should keep you up at night. I'm not just saying if you're unrepentant. I'm saying if you're... If you're in fellowship with an unrepentant person who's bringing shame and reproach on Christ and they refuse to repent, there's a bigger issue than just being removed from church membership or a roster that's been formalized. Because the person isn't, what what Jesus is teaching here is not that the person's in danger of being removed from a recall roster or a phone list. Jesus, what Jesus is saying, that there's no evidence, forget about church, that you're in the kingdom at all. 
Now, I know the word submission can cause tension, but, but submission to the church is evidence that you've been born again through the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. And, and submission, by that I mean, brother, sister, you're in sin. You agree you're in sin. And they say, turn, turn, turn from the sin and receive the grace from Jesus Christ that is given to you from the cross that he died and bled on, right? We forgive. Remember the one another's? Forgive one another. And we forgive. That, that, that's to submit to the church in that specific issue. We're not, it's not the only issue that we're all called to submit to. I mean, just, you know, we're, the Bible says we're supposed to submit to the elders of the church. And for the record, that's a spiritual submission and not a do whatever the elders say type of submission. We don't have time to distinguish between the two this morning. Hopefully you know that there is a difference or you don't know every difference. And, and just for the record, every elder here submits to the elders as well. So none of us are lone rangers. We submit too. And ultimately, as Jordan said this morning, we're just the body of Christ. Christ is the head. Christ has authority over all of us, including the elders. But we should still establish the fact that local churches in the New Testament were told to appoint elders who were to watch over their souls and to care for the health of the congregation, and they were called to submit, to submit to elders. So when, the, when, when local churches began being planted, the custom was to appoint elders who would care for each congregation, each church. And they were chosen, the elders were chosen to, to oversee the affairs of the church, Acts 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Achinium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't sound very prosperitable. Uh, sorry, off topic. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, when the churches were appointed elders, the churches were told to submit to the elders. Hebrews. He's preaching this, this letter of Hebrews that we read. He says, look, remember your leaders. Those, don't forget this part. Those who spoke the word of God to you. Remember those leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Their faith. Imitate their faith. And then down in verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account, as those is who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
My main point is not only to point out that Christians are called to submit to their elders. That, that's, not the, that's, that's not even really where I'm going with this. That my, my, my main point of this, saying submit to your elders, and the Bible says it, is for you to think about, <laughs> to consider what elders, which elders, a Christian is called to submit to. If a person isn't supposed to formally be uh, a member of a specific congregation, who are the leaders they're told to submit to? I mean, are Christians supposed to, to just submit to any person who says they hold the title of elder or pastor or overseer? I mean, the... the Obey your leaders, submit. Does that mean that, that you're supposed to submit, if you live in Leavenworth, you're supposed to submit to the elders over at the Naz Church? Or you're supposed to submit in Wenatchee to the elders at Grace City? Does the Bible put that type of authority over us? I, I think the logical answer is No. But if there's any confusion, the, the answer is no. No, the Bible does not put that type of authority over us. I mean, not for nothing, but there's many leaders within the evangelical church, if you will, that I would be terrified for you to follow. That's, that's, that's why it's so vital that the church you choose must have godly men that you can trust and entrust your lives to submit to. That they do care for your soul. That they are watching over your soul. Those aren't perfect men, qualified by character and the ability to teach. But you know you can trust them. You know they walk with the Lord. And if you have trouble following the church's leadership... The, the elders, the, the leaders of that church, well, that church probably isn't for you, right? It's not the right congregation, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's wrong. And that, that's not a reference to our church. Again, I'm not speaking to anyone in our congregation uh, 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 on a personal note. That's just reference to any church that a leadership, that has a leadership you're unwilling to follow. But I do want to say, if you can't find any church where you would actually submit to the leadership, the problem may not actually be the leadership. There's a chance the problem is actually you. So I'm just throwing that one out there. And, and just finally as a point, 1 Timothy 5.17 Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor preaching teaching. And so I ask, who or what, who are the elders ruling over that's supposed to get double honor? Who are they ruling over if it isn't a local church with members that they are leading? As Alistair Begg likes to say, you're a sensible people. Think it through.
final point is not even a point, it's just conclusion. I, I've, I've, I've never preached on the whole topic of church membership. Usually I've taught it, and I've taught it in multiple weeks. So if there's something that I've left out or something you're wondering about, I apologize for that. Uh, shoot me an email or we can you know, discuss it longer. There, there's a lot to go that goes into that. So... Um, but, but here's where I want to conclude because the, the focus of the sermon has been so overwhelmingly about the, the local church or the, the universal church expressing itself through the local church that I, that I just want to end with not how you become a member of a local church. That's up to the local church. I want to end with how you become a member of the universal church. This is where we find the gospel. And this is where we come to our conclusion. Because, because ultimately, the entry of our membership into the body of Christ begins the moment you first believe. And we need to emphasize on that because there are plenty of people with formalized membership in local churches who have never actually entered into membership in the universal church. By that I mean... There's plenty of people that have their name that have com- on, on a church's roster who have committed to a local church, one specific local church for decades, and yet they have still failed to ever meet the risen Christ. And my goal is to make sure that, that the message of Christ and our entrance into his body is not conflated with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we must all understand that, that our entry, that your entry into the body of Christ is based upon your faith in the death and resurrection of our Lord. You see, the, the only way that we're able to enter universal membership is it's actually by having someone pledge for us. Right? Now, now, we... We do that in the context of a local church. The elders say, hey, we've heard their testimony. We've interviewed them. We put them in front of you to be affirmed. They've been baptized, da 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 But that's into the local church. To enter the universal church, someone else has to pledge for you. See, in other words, when, when we show up, <laughs> this is an illustration, to Heaven's Country Club, and they ask... If we're on the list, and we, I, I think our response should be, better be, well, I'm on the list, but you're not going to find membership under my name. My membership is found in Christ's name, see? And I'm here on behalf of him. He purchased my membership with his blood. And I don't belong here as a member because of who I am or what I've done. I'm welcome here because of what he's done and who he is. You see, it is upon the name of Christ and his work alone that we are allowed entry into his kingdom.
And so, loved ones, I ask you today, are you a member of Christ's body? And is that membership based on faith that your sins are forgiven because a merciful Savior died for them? And are you convinced that you will be raised on the last day because he was raised on the third? And if so, if you believe that, then you're a member of Christ's body. And so my next question is, if that's true, are you living that out through your commitment to a local church? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it's, uh, it, it, it's intimidating to, to preach topically and, and to not think of all the different gaps or things that may have not been discussed or maybe something that was confusing, Lord. And so, God, I just I entrust the preaching to your word that it will not return void. It is not in vain but that, that you have a purpose for your people. And even part of that purpose is to hear your word proclaimed and to respond to that. And, and we're the ones purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and given new life through the Holy Spirit, Lord. So, so I pray, I, I, I believe that we have ears to hear and eyes to see and, and hearts to ac accept this message, Lord, and, and reflect and examine our own lives and say, maybe I'm, maybe, maybe I'm willing to be a member. Maybe I am a member of a local church. What does my checklist look like with the one another's? Am I loving the people I'm in fellowship with? Do I need to, do I, do I need to, to commit greater to that? And, and if so, God, would you provide the grace and the strength for them to do that, Lord? God, I told your church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord. And God, we take that to be true. And so in faith and hope and in eager expectation, we expect you to build the body of Christ here at Cornerstone. And God, we need your help in order to do that. And so we rely on you for instruction. In Jesus' name, amen.